Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, with the news as usual. And then I sit down with Maryland State Senator Bill Ferguson, who's also the president of the Maryland State Senate, to discuss the future of Baltimore and Maryland. He's actually one of the first legislative leaders in a state that we've had on the pod. And I just wanted to learn more about what's happening in a moment like this. And he was just elected as Senate president in Maryland. So there's a lot to talk about. The lesson this week is sometimes you got to wash your hands. You've heard that the best way to protect yourself, you don't need a whole lot of hand sanitizer. You don't always need gloves every day. But what you do need to do is wash your hands. That is one of the most effective ways to keep safe, to stay healthy. And it made me think about, you know, sometimes you got to wash your hands of people, of places, of feelings, of things that don't serve you. That sometimes we hang on to things because we want it to work or there were really good memories or because, you know, it did something really important to us. And sometimes that really is just us living in the past and us not sort of realizing the moment that we're in right now and that we have grown and that we're different people. So the lesson this week is sometimes you got to wash your hands. And I think about myself, I have let go of a lot of fears and a lot of things that I've been carrying. I, you know, I told you I've been in therapy and so much of it has been like, how do I wash my hands of these things that I know are holding me back? That's on my heart right now. Sometimes you just got to wash your hands. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. So, Black America has had a week. And when I say we've had a week, <laughs> I mean we've had a month and a year and a lifetime, a generation, several generations, some centuries. But it felt like this last week, everything just all came together at once. All the bad stuff. We'll talk about the most chilling piece of information that we all found out last week a little bit later. But in the past week, we lost the legend, the founder of rock and roll, little Richard Penniman himself. We lost the founder of Uptown Records, Andre Harrell. And if there were no Andre, there'd be no Puffy. There'd be no uh, New Jack Swing. There'd be no Teddy Riley. There'd be no Mary J. Blige. There'd be no Heavy D. There'd be no Jodeci. There'd be no hip-hop soul. Literally none of it would exist. Uh, we found out that we lost Miss Betty Wright, who many people know as the cleanup woman, uh, but was a musical legend in her own right. But thankfully, we were able to close out the week on Saturday night with a, a sage-infused salve in the form of what was not really a battle, but a love fest between Jill Scott, the mother Erica Badu, and their respective catalogs for two hours on IG Live. What did y'all think of, like I said, what was not a battle at all, but what seemed to be um, two mothers giving us the love that we needed before Mother's Day and following uh, a pretty rough week? I loved how much love there was when Erica and... Uh, Jill were together. Like, it really was this, like, deep appreciation. Jill acknowledged so much about how she influenced her, and Erica received it. And I had no clue. I don't know why. I must have just been living under a rock. I didn't realize that Jill wrote, um... I, like, didn't realize she wrote Erica's lyrics for that. She wasn't as well-known. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the story about how, like, Erica was late to the event thing, and the Roots was like... Y'all, we got to start. So we just go ahead, Jill, knock this one out. And we have all heard her version of it, which is legendary. And 
to see her on the live talk about how afraid she was and how nervous she was, and then for her to sing the, my name is J-I-L-L-S-C-O-T-T. -T. I mean, she knocked that out of the park, so it was beautiful. S-C-O-T-T. -T. You know, that neo-soul era, man, like Jill Scott, Erica Badu, Music Soul Child, Anthony Hamilton, um, Kim. I mean, all these folks who were so central to my own upbringing it was just nostalgia it's like and i've talked before about like the reason i go to concerts is like for that nostalgic value like i love going to the folks who have like not had a great sing like a hit single in like 15 years but like you go to that concert and you're gonna get like hit after hit after hit of like that moment you were riding in the car with your dad or when you and your mom were on the way to the grocery store just like it brings up all those memories for me the passing of little richard really her, you know, he he lived a long, a long life, late into his 80s. We played Tutti Frutti on repeat all weekend in this house. My son was like, who's that? Who's that? And I was like, son, that's little. It was almost out of body experience. <laughs> I was like, I put my hand on his shoulder and I was like, son, that's little Richard. <laughs> and <laughs> then the he was like, Tutti Frutti. Roll, baby. My friend Christy's dad is elderly and his back is, he's he's got a bad back. But he grew up going to Little Richard concerts. Like, every time he came through town, he was always at the Little Richard concerts. And apparently, as she was growing up, he would always regale her with these stories of the Little Richard concerts and the dancing and the singing and the theatrics. And yesterday, he got up out of his seat. And when I tell you he cut a rug, it, it, that back did not matter. He cut a rug to Tutti Frutti yesterday. It was such a beautiful thing. Man, that's what it'll do. Now my toddler's walking around saying, Sue knows what to do. And I was like, all right, we got to press pause. <laughs> oh, man. But it's he also has this song that he did for Sesame Street, which is like a, a Rubber Ducky remix, where he's singing the Rubber Ducky song that Bird and Ernie usually sing. So we had that on repeat, too. Um, I hadn't listened to a Little Richard record in years, honestly. I, and as soon as we put it on, it just like all came back. And it's just the the feeling of that music was so powerful. And I love people sharing the clips where he talked very clearly about the fact that he created this sound. He was the vanguard of this genre and that he was prevented from um, being recognized as the founder of rock and roll and as the originator of this sound because he was a black man. And because and there's a clip that was going around where he talks about they didn't want him to be known as the, the founder of rock and roll because they didn't want, they didn't like little white girls dancing to black boys on stage and and it just is a reminder that like so many of our entertainers, not all, but many of them from, you know, our earliest eras and more recently do have a really sophisticated sense and analysis of like their own positionality with regard to the sort of culture that they occupy. So rest in peace to Lil Richard and the rest of those folks. Um, but I was so thrilled to get to listen to his music again. Listen, Little Richard was legendary around my house. And as a side note... Leon, also known as Leon Robinson, the actor, played Little Richard in a movie. I want to say it was on like 2000. Reggie and I watched it not too long ago. Leon also needs to get his flowers while we still have the chance because he played Little Richard, David Ruffin. He played one of the stars of the, the Five Heartbeats, which you could not tell me was not a real group when I was a kid. 
definitely honored Little Richard in the way that he deserved. I love the Arsenio Hall clip that's been going around about Little Richard, to your point, Clint, where he's saying, essentially, he's the originator and the founder and never got his credit. He literally never won a Grammy, and he founded, uh, he was a bedrock of rock and roll. Um, but he said, now, nah, I want everybody to not be confused. I'm not conceited. I don't want you to think I'm conceited. I'm convinced. And I was like, you know what? Let me put a little pep in my step and not be conceited, but be convinced just like Little Richard. I know this was a rough week for all of us. It was I was doing my best, as I know you all were, to try to speak to our collective pain and carrying a lot of it. And I felt like come Saturday was all about to crash. Like I was about to drop all of it because it was just heavy. But that moment between Jill and Erica was everything that I needed. Michelle Obama was in there. She tagged Barack Obama. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, something's about to go down because everybody's in a vibe. I asked Twitter, I said, what do you all think this particular IG Live smells like? Here's some of the answers I got. Sage, homemade body butter, and incense. Patchouli oil. Egyptian musk. Kush. I'm not going to say I know what that is, but I know what that is. Shea butter with the hint of coconut oil. And my favorite, corner store incense and fabuloso. At least it's clean in there. But most certainly, they gave us a real gift and I'm grateful for it. And now, the news. That begins with me. And I'm actually in the tradition of our friends over at the Reed podcast going to pass the Reed to the governor of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Let me give you a little background before I do that. Governor Christy Nome, the Republican governor of South Dakota, sent a letter last Friday to the leaders of the Oglala Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe across the state. Essentially, she demanded that the checkpoints that these tribes have designed to prevent the spread of COVID-19 on tribal lands be removed. Of course, these tribes set up these checkpoints to ensure that people who had essential business outside of tribal lands were engaging in safe practices when they came back in and that anybody who claimed that they had a legitimate reason to visit tribal lands were being safe as well. Now, we all have to remember, tribal lands are completely sovereign. They work in partnership with regional, local, municipal, and state governments, but they indeed are sovereign land. And what I love is a good read. What I especially love is a good read that comes from a leader in a marginalized space to someone who doesn't have to make the same considerations that they do. Here is what the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe chairman, Harold Frazier, said in his press release on Friday. He said, quote, You, that's Governor Nome, continuing to interfere in our efforts to do what science and facts dictate seriously undermine our ability to protect anyone on the reservation. Listen, America forced indigenous people onto those lands, signed treaties with them that they have continued to not honor, and now wants to tell them what to do to keep their own people safe? Not only is this atrocious on its face, it is also deeply dangerous considering that unsurprisingly and unfortunately, indigenous people are at greater risk of economic harm and physical harm from COVID-19. 
According to the Indian Health Services, there are more than 3,600 confirmed cases among Native American tribes, and that's just enrolled members. We know that there are many more indigenous people beyond reservation lands. More than two of them are on the Navajo Reservation, which stretches across parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, and is home to 250,000 people. We also know that as of the end of last month, the Navajo Nation had the third highest per capita rate of COVID-19 in the entire country only after at the time, New York and New Jersey. We also know that much like Black Americans, Indigenous people appear to have a higher risk of serious complications because of comorbidities like diabetes, heart disease, and other conditions. So I am incredibly glad that we saw the kind of example of sovereign, clear leadership from Chairman Fraser um, that the world needs to see, that this country needs to see, and most certainly, Indigenous people deserve to know that they are being protected by their leaders. So thanks for sharing this, Brittany. This is another layer of news on top of an existing situation in Native American reservations and broader Native American communities across the country with regard to how the government has systematically excluded them from receiving relief. And now what we're seeing in South Dakota is that they are threatening to dismantle the efforts that tribes are putting together um, with the resources they have to actually defend themselves and protect themselves from coronavirus. Um, So just uh, this past week, there was a new story about uh, several Native American tribes that are actually suing the Treasury over stimulus funding. So this is a a huge issue. Uh, There are over $8 billion in federal coronavirus relief that has still not uh, been provided to Native American communities, despite that being included in the legislation. Um, So again, this is is a huge issue. Folks are not getting the resources that they need, and uh, the government is continuing to act in ways that make folks less safe. So my news is about another issue that is impacting marginalized communities across the country, uh, and that is the issue of police violence. So since uh, the coronavirus crisis hit, we've actually seen a number of impacts that the crisis has had on the criminal justice system, ranging from a decline in arrests in jurisdictions across the country. So police are making fewer arrests. So for example, a USA Today article looked at data from 20 of the largest police departments in the country. um, And what they found was that there was a decline of about 47% in new bookings and arrests uh, among those departments. Uh, Similarly, crime is also down substantially, uh, particularly in jurisdictions that have been impacted more by coronavirus. Crime has dropped precipitously. 19 out of 20 large police agencies uh, reviewed in a USA Today article had a decline in crime uh, since about mid-March. And there's also been a decline in incarceration, jail incarceration in particular, uh, where we've seen an 18% decrease for the median jail, according to the Prison Policy Institute, and about a 2 to 5% decrease in prison populations across the country. So all of that is good. It is progress. It is a reduction in arrests and criminal justice contact. But one area that has not seen improvements is the area of police violence particularly when we're looking at fatal police violence, which is the data that we're able to collect across the country. What that shows is that police shootings, fatal police shootings, uh, have continued to happen at the same rates during this crisis as they were happening before. If you look at the Washington Post database of police shootings, uh, so far this year, there have been 351 people fatally shot by the police. That is actually slightly higher than the number of people fatally shot by police during this period last year, uh, and is in line with the 
rates that we were seeing for several years now. This is fascinating. I wanted to bring this to the conversation because we're seeing some progress in some aspects of the criminal justice system as a direct response to the coronavirus crisis. But for some reason, we are not seeing a progress being made on the police violence front. So Sam, your news is really helpful because it reminds us that mo- so many of the things that we experience today are really just uh, manifestations of things that we've experienced before, that a crisis doesn't make them go away, that it often exacerbates them, and that if we pay attention to what came before, we can actually see the cycle that this trauma sort of participates in. And that sort of brings me to my news. So there's an article in The New Yorker called How Racism is Shaping the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's an interview by Isaac Schottner and Evelyn Hammonds, who chairs Harvard's Department of the History of Science. And she has spent her career focusing on sort of race and disease. This interview was fascinating. And and the context for the interview is that given the data that we know now, Black people represent nearly a third of the deaths from COVID-19 and 30% of COVID-19 cases, despite making up only about 13% of the population. So that's sort of the context. And we've obviously talked about race and coronavirus for a while. But I learned a lot in this article. So when this first started, one of my news was about the smallpox outbreak that happened in Philadelphia and how, because of myths, uh, there was this idea that Black people were immune and Black people weren't immune. But the myth of immunity uh, led Black people to stay, to take care of the white people. And then a ton of Black people died. I had never heard about this article called Germs Know No Color Line. So by the early 20th century, there's a famous article comes out published in the American Journal of Public Health that's called Germs Know No Color Line. And the doctor who wrote it was making this argument that white people need to care about the health of black people, not because black people were just worth caring about or black people were important to care about, but because black people work for them. And that the way society was configured at the time is that, like, to not care about the health of Black people was to not care about your own health, in a sense, because Black people raised your kids, they cooked for your kids, they cleaned your house, they did the laundry. You were always in proximity to Black people, so to disregard that health would actually be a public health crisis. Now, there's a part of that that might sound benevolent to some people, but what that birthed was this idea that Black bodies were dangerous, that white people needed to protect themselves from Black bodies, and that Black bodies and Black people spread disease, which is what she talks about in the article. And that is really interesting to me. And she sort of maps how that very idea is what we experience today with COVID, that in this moment with COVID, people are saying things like, you know, Black people have higher respiratory issues, Black people have hypertension, Black people have these underlying causes as if there's something wrong with the bodies of Black people, as opposed to noting that there are a set of social conditions that lead to these disparate outcomes that happen to be about race, but the happenstance is never accidental. This is on purpose. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting and I didn't know was around the time of Reconstruction and around the time of emancipation, that Black people, she argues, were essentially a refugee population. They were leaving plantations in the South and that they had very little plans, very little resources, almost no housing, very little clothing, and they certainly didn't have health care. And at this time, a smallpox epidemic broke out And by then, white people knew how to treat smallpox. They knew about inoculation, vaccination, again, learned from someone who was enslaved. But what they did at this time is that they actually isolated the Black people who were following the troops as refugees. And by isolating Black people, what they did is that they essentially guaranteed that the smallpox would travel very quickly in this population. So a lot of people died. 
and that this led to a conclusion by a historian named Margaret Humphreys. She sort of popularized this notion that, quote, the path to freedom was death, destitution, and suffering. That, like, the act of freedom was actually dangerous and caused health problems in Black people. And that is sort of the origin of the relationship between epidemic and outbreak. That when Black people were leaving the South, it started all these powerful things like the Freeman's Borough, which could have been amazing if it wasn't thwarted, could have been free health care for people, could have been all these things. But we saw that white people sort of allowed outbreaks to happen so they could say, you know, see what freedom did? They were much more healthy when they were on plantations. They were much more healthy when they were being controlled in a certain way. And now freedom has actually made them unhealthy. And we know these ideas aren't true. But the last thing I learned from this article was the idea of an extinction thesis. And what she talks about is that there were white elites who noted that there was so much disease in Black communities pneumonia, sexually transmitted diseases, tuberculosis, respiratory diseases. Like that was the argument that that the rate of disease is so much higher that black people can't possibly live as long as white people could. And that at some point they're simply going to die under the burden of disease. So I say all this to say that I was fascinated to think about this history. It makes so much sense about how we got to where we are now. And we saw that the extinction thesis doesn't play out that there was an epidemic in 1918. Black people did not have higher rates of flu. We see that these things are just rooted in scientific racism, but they still have vestiges that have an impact today. I'm glad you shared this, DeRay. And and what I think it represents is the insidiousness and illogic associated with white supremacy in the sense that they began by talking about how black people had immunity to smallpox and black people had immunity to all these diseases. And so they put black people on the front lines of caring for the sick with these diseases because they were like, oh, the black body is somehow impenetrable to smallpox, which contributed to this sort of notion of monstrosity, right? Like they're not impacted by the things that humans are. And then it flips, right? Because then black people start dying at these, you know, high rates from these diseases that they are exposed to for a variety of reasons. Then it's like, oh, well, see, this is what happens in the context of freedom. This is what happens if you try to let them free, then they're just, they're going to get all these diseases. And they talked about all these white newspaper reports that were saying that this proved that black people weren't fit for freedom. And it's just, it's just so wild to me because there is no consistency with the argument. And that is how white supremacy works. It's not about anything except extending an argument about power. And you find that power in whatever is convenient for your argument at that time. And it's also just reflects the fact that black people were experiencing diseases this way is reflective of the healthcare that was taken away from them after reconstruction was thwarted. And so again, there's another level of insidiousness where it's like, they took away their health care and then they look around and they're like, oh, look, black people dying. This is why they can't survive in freedom. But it's like they're only dying at these rates because you took away the very thing that would save them. We see this manifesting itself again and again and again. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to Cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny, 
Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. For my news, I want to talk about uh, the thing that is on and has been on all of our minds over the course of the past week, uh, and that is the death and killing of Ahmaud Aubrey. So two months ago, a young man named Ahmaud Aubrey was shot and killed in Georgia. Uh, last Tuesday, a video was released showing the shooting and the moments leading up to it. For those of you who have not seen the video or who have decided to not watch the video, which is understandable, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, it's taken from inside the vehicle and shows Ahmaud Aubrey running along a two-lane residential road when he comes upon a white truck and a man standing next to the truck's driver's side door. There's another man in the bed of the pickup truck, and Aubrey, as he comes up to them, he runs around the truck and disappears from view for a second, and then muffled shouting can be heard before Aubrey emerges, and he's tussling with this man outside of the truck, and then three shotgun blasts echo in the video. A Georgia prosecutor had the case for weeks before recusing himself. There was another prosecutor who also recused himself, uh, and they advised the Glynn County Police Department that there was, quote, insufficient probable cause to issue arrest warrants for the McMichaels, who are the people who shot and killed uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Gregory McMichael is a former officer with the Glynn County Police Department until his retirement last year. Uh, and he spent many years as an investigator in the local district attorney's office. After public outcry from this video going into circulation, Travis McMichael and his father, uh, Gregory Michael, who I just mentioned, were charged with the murder and aggravated assault of Ahmaud Aubrey two days after the video went public. A lot of people started organizing on social media on Friday, which would have been Ahmaud Aubrey's birthday, and supporters ran 2.23 miles, uh, which represented the date of his death, uh, and then posted the social media hashtag, quote, I run with Maud. What we know about Ahmaud Aubrey is that he was a former high school football player who was living with his mom outside the small city of Brunswick in Georgia, and folks who knew him said he liked to stay in good shape, that he was often seen jogging around his neighborhood, and he would have turned 26 last week, and now he's dead. And Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, he, he joins a long list of black people who've been killed at the hands of the state and at the hands of vigilante who believe themselves to hold the power of the state. And there are many names we know and many names we don't know uh, and we'll never know. And a lot of what I've been thinking about lately is how but for the release of this video, Ahmaud Aubrey's death would be something that was known to very few people. You know, he was killed two months ago, but uh, this barely made the news outside of that local area in part because of so much going on with COVID. But it brings me to another point, which is I want to find a way to speak to this tension that I feel manifests itself in these moments in which these videos of Black people being shot and killed seem to consistently be the only thing that serve as a catalyst for getting these cases any sort of attention, not necessarily justice, but getting them attention. But in doing so, and in their wide circulation also continues to feel like at once normalize, desensitize, but then on the other end, traumatize those who consume it. And so it's a tension that I recognize. And, you know, I've, we've seen so many of these videos and I have to admit for myself, like I, when I first realized there was a video I watch it because I, I want to understand what's going on, but I didn't watch this thing for, for a couple of days just because I didn't feel like I could. Um, it's a strange sort of cognitive dissonance to know that without this video, 
there would be no arrest. Obviously, we still don't know what will happen following the arrest, but also to not want people to consume Black death in this way on such a consistent basis. And I don't know the answer. I I just think it's important to name that tension. You know, one of the things I've always been um, really intentional about is reminding people the difference between justice and accountability, that accountability is often what happens after the trauma. Justice is the idea that the trauma shouldn't happen in the first place. This is actually how all of us know each other is because of the protests in St. Louis that started a movement both here and across the world uh, is that we have dealt with so much death over the past five years. Like just, I feel like, you know, there are countless people who don't trend, who we never know their names in the national space, and that we haven't actually gotten to a point of justice, and that the police issue is actually one of the few issues in the civil rights space that has remained as bad as it always has been, that there's been very little like change with regard to the numbers, which has sort of been interesting. Even in this moment, and Sam has talked about this on another episode, but like the police have killed more people since the protests, not less. Even though there are some wins in cities, like the overall number is still actually pretty consistent. And it just makes me think about all the celebrities and all the people who posted and all the people who ran, you know, for Ahmad and all the people who sort of acknowledged that this was a crisis. And I do think about this as a police issue because one of the people that participated in the killing of Ahmad was a former police officer who was let off the hook initially because of his relationship with the city leadership. I just think about what will need to happen to push people from awareness to like structural action. You know, I can't even count the number of celebrities who had such forceful posts about Ahmad who if we ask them to like call the governor who's their friend or like say something intense to the mayor who's their cousin or their next door neighbor, they would be like, I'm trying not to be political. Like, I don't want to be political. Like, I just think that. And you're like, well, then what happens? Like, will you only care when your cousin gets killed or will you only care when it's your child that you'll actually say something or do something? Now, with that said, I will say as I end is that I think that a lot of people don't know what the solutions are, and I believe that. I think a lot of people sort of know the problem, and there was a time where it took a small group of us to be like, I think this is wrong, whereas now people get it. And I do think that part of our work is to popularize what solutions can look like. Like, what is a world without so many police or any police at all? What is a world without putting people in cages? Like, what is that? Like, just building that consciousness so people see it as a real thing and not a pie-in-the-sky idea. But that is what's been on my heart, is like, what will be the transition from awareness to to action that changes structures? Like you said, DeRay, over the past five years, there have been just so many cases. And, you know, part of the work that we do in collecting the data, collecting the evidence uh, around police violence across the country is having to grapple with each and every one of those cases. And like, not just the ones that, that most people hear about, but a lot of the cases that a lot of people don't hear about. Um, you know, one of the darkest and grimmest days for me has been several years ago when I went through compiling this database for uh, police violence across the country and creating a page specifically uh, focused on unarmed Black people who've been killed by the police over the past several years. And that work meant writing the stories of each and every one of those cases, finding uh, images of folks and trying to bear witness to what was happening. And it was over 100 people, right, in, in a given year. And, you know, probably maybe three or four of those people uh, were people that, you know, other people may have recognized or known about. But the vast majority of these cases, people just didn't know about. And nevertheless, like, these are lives that have been taken. And it is this tension that you mentioned, Clint, of 
this was one of the videos that like, after seeing so many different videos and so many different stories, this video just sort of hit me differently. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it was like the vigilante aspect of it or if it was how closely connected this incident and how it went down seemed to be to what happened to Trayvon Martin, which hit me very personally because it was in Central Florida. Like, I don't know why this case in particular um, of all the cases sort of hit me differently, but uh, but it did. And, and just like naming the trauma, naming the, the effect that that has in just seeing those videos everywhere, all across the timeline at all times. And, and this really does have an effect. And I think it's important that like, yes, it, on the one hand, I think the fact that the video was put out there probably did make the difference in getting those two guys arrested. Of course, they haven't been convicted of anything yet. That's important to note because a lot of times these cases result in arrests but not convictions. But at the same time, like, there is plenty of research now that tracks the fact that police violence impacts the mental health of the entire Black population in America. That each new case that we become aware of, of somebody getting murdered by police or by vigilantes, has a measurable impact in contributing to rates of depression, negative mental health outcomes. And these actually like have a real impact on people's lives and cause premature death in some cases. So all of this is not good. I'm still sort of grappling with the impact of seeing the video and what that means. But it's real, and, and it is something that has not stopped. As you said, DeRay, like the rates have not gone down nationwide. Um, we have less data on vigilante killings than we do on police killings. But the data there doesn't look good either. And, and I think it is something that, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I can't watch any more of these videos. Like all of you, this video hit me particularly hard. And I think there was something about watching Ahmad fight for his life before it was stolen from him that undid me. And it took me some time to actually let myself watch it. I got a text from somebody asking me how they should be processing it. They asked in a thoughtful and respective way. And I shared, I hadn't watched it yet, but I'd let them know once I had. And I gave myself a few more hours and I finally watched it. And in the coming days, like the three of you guys and so many other people have tried to help put language to to this utter injustice several times on television did love its podcast talked to folks on the phone texted with people dm'd with people gave people advice and i don't think i let myself really feel it until saturday night i knew that if i felt it too much i'd be incapable of doing my job to be a person who like all of you, helps us try to move to an actual reality of justice. And Saturday night, it just all came flooding out. And I thought that I had finally had the release that I needed. And then I got in bed and I looked on my phone for one last time and I saw the name of Breonna Taylor. So Breonna Taylor is, was a young EMT in Louisville. She worked at two different hospitals and always talked about how much she loved helping patients. She was asleep in bed with her boyfriend when the police came to execute a warrant. The boyfriend, not knowing who was at the door, shot back at the door and injured one of the police officers. He was arrested and was held on $250,000 bond until he was released to home bondage for um, due to COVID-19, um, but is 
being accused and charged with attempted murder for trying to defend his household. Because we know from Trayvon to Ahmad to Shannon Brown to now this young man that stand your ground does not work the same way for black people that it does for white people. And as the police executed this warrant, they shot Brianna eight times and killed her. The warrant was issued for a different house. They were looking for drugs that they did not find in Brianna's home. And the person that they were looking for was already in police custody. Brianna was killed on March the 13th. And none of us have heard about it because there is no video. Apparently, the officers from this particular unit do not wear body cameras. And so there's not even footage for us to feel tension about. And I hadn't heard her name, even as somebody who lives in this just like you all do. And I thought that I had finally had my release of feelings for Ahmad, and they all came rushing back for Brianna. And I don't have any analysis or scholarly language to give anybody. And I don't want to, because at some point, y'all are going to have to feel what it feels like to feel this. At some point, you're going to have to put yourself in the position of the mothers who celebrated Mother's Day without their children, of Ahmad's mother and Brianna's mother who don't have any answers and have no accountability for what happened to their babies. At some point, we're going to have to stop theorizing about it and going on cute runs and posting about it and actually decide to be doggedly anti-racist people who will stop at nothing to make sure that this is no longer people's reality. John O'Reilly on Twitter asked the only question that I think that matters. She said, white people, what are you doing to make sure you are raising children who won't kill mine? And I believe that's the only question to be asked. Because if you are not willing to do precisely that and more, this is not a conversation for you. And we need you to be in this fight with us. Though these times are as hard as they have been, and, you know, Brittany, you certainly remember when we were in the street in St. Louis, most people know Mike Brown's name. They don't know the 10 other people that the police killed literally while we were still in the street, uh, that we have all dealt so much with death. But I do think that there is going to be a time in our lifetime where we see these things end. I believe that. I think that over the past five years, we built, we all have built an incredible coalition of people who understand it. If there was anything sort of hopeful that came out of this moment is just the sheer number of people whose analysis of the racism in this was actually spot on. Because Lord knows, I remember five years ago where people would say things and they'd be like, that was nothing's race related here. And you're like, what world are we living in? Whereas there are a lot of people who got it. They didn't need it explained by any of us. They got it. They understood it. They didn't need an activist to come in with the 20-thread version. Uh, but there is, and Clint, you sort of talked about this when you talked about the video, there is something really scary that the only way you believe the pain of Black people is if you see it on camera. And then you got to see a whole lot of videos to really believe it. So like one is not really enough. The one only matters because you've seen like 15 before and you're like, wow, this is really bad. I remain hopeful. Uh, I worry about this next phase with the mods case because if you've not already seen, they are trying to dig up other evidence to say that he committed some wrongdoing or he did it. Uh, and the question that I always bring it back to when people come at me 
is should he be alive or not? That's it. Like, you tell me. Whatever happened, should he be alive or not? Like, that's the only question that's at stake here. And we can't participate in this notion that there's some things that people should be killed for and some things they shouldn't be killed for. Ahmad should be alive today. Brianna should be alive today. So many people should be alive today. And now my conversation with Bill Ferguson. He's the 37-year-old president of the state Senate in Maryland. He's been pushing to reform education, criminal justice, and social support systems for a decade as an elected representative. I remember working for him when he ran a decade ago, and now he's up against a whole new set of problems. But he's got plans for the future. And we have a wide-ranging conversation about what does it mean to be in a legislative role in a moment like this, and what's it like to be the president of the Maryland State Senate? Let's go. Senator Bill Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It is so great to uh, join you virtually, DeRay, uh, and great to hear your voice. I've known you, it feels like forever. I remember when you first ran to be in the Maryland Senate. Uh, how long ago was that? 2010, yeah, 10 years ago. Hard to believe. Actually, it was this, like right now, 2010. I remember knocking doors with you in your neighborhood, and now you are president of the Senate, which is so, so wild. How has it been in the past decade being in the Maryland State Senate? And what made you run? Like, why, There are a lot of people who are listening who have thought about elected office, but what made you run in the first place? You know, it's funny. I, I Obviously, I get this, this question a lot. And at the end of the day, it was about wanting to have an immediate impact. And I felt like where things were, uh, as I was looking around in the neighborhoods and communities and then my experience in the school system, I just felt that the, the sort of insanity of now uh, had to change. And if you really want to change, um, programs are wonderful. They do great things. But if you really, really want to change society, you have to change the laws. And to change the laws, uh, you know, the, one of the best ways to do so is to get involved in the process and, and be an elected official. And so, you know, I think the choice to actually run in the race that I ran, though, uh, was a bit of naivete. Uh, I didn't fully know what I was getting into before I jumped in. And I think that actually that really helped uh, make the decision because folks like you, uh, you know, I was able to just reach out and say, hey, I've got this idea. Let's go for it. Um, and just I was amazed by the incredible people that sort of were motivated by similar ideals that uh, were willing to come out and help. And here we are 10 years later. Um, who would have thought? Who would have thought? What's one of the biggest differences about being president of the Senate? I, I feel like that, you know, the old president of the Senate had been there for so long. And I remember reading in the newspaper that you've been elected as president of the Senate by your peers. Uh, and that seems like such a dramatic shift from your old life as a senator representing a part of Baltimore City. Can you help people understand, like, what is that role even? And how has that change been for you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, first and foremost, I'm still learning through it. Um, and I think it would be unfair to say otherwise, because it is such a dramatic change from what it was previously. As a part of the Maryland Senate, there's 47 of us. And the, the president of the Senate, um, I sort of liken to not really a coach, but more of a, a conductor of an orchestra, you know, that there are a lot of moving pieces happening all at the same time. And the sort of conductor is trying to make sure that it's all in rhythm and it's moving correctly and that the sounds are right. Um, you know, I feel like that's that is really fundamentally the role of the Senate president. It's to make others be more successful. So trying to work on the systems and structures that will ensure that my 46 other colleagues can be as effective as they can be while trying to set an agenda that will really move opportunity for Maryland families. And, you know, those two can sometimes be in conflict depending on the moment or the issue. Um, but it is much more of a 
operational kind of vision role uh, than it is the kind of nitty-gritty policy details. And that's been an enormous change for me from being a senator representing the 46th district who loves the policy nitty-gritty, kind of moving to a place of kind of trying to set the agenda and help others move the work effectively and, and get the right messaging out so that we can, we can win on our values. It's also very much about the institution, which, you know, in this day and age, kind of institutions are in such, they're not in the highest regard. Uh, uh, people have very deep skepticism about institutions, but fundamentally, they're what are required for us to kind of create the society that we believe is possible. And without them, we have chaos. And so, you know, the Senate president before me had served for, Senate President Mike Miller had been there for 33 years. Uh, so he was the longest serving Senate president in the history of the United States. Following someone like that, you know, there's no guidebook, there's no template. And for a while, I think there was a large part of me that thought, how would Mike have done this? And I, I learned pretty quickly that that's a failed strategy. I, I'm not him. I hadn't served for 33 years. Um, I have to be me, and I have to kind of place the trust that I have in my colleagues who put me there um, so that we can collaboratively figure out, you know, how do we tackle these huge problems that are, that are facing all of us? Um, and so once I really got into the mindset of like, I have to do this my way and, and kind of, you know, not try to replicate ways of the past, I think I felt freer to focus on the issues that I think matter most, like making sure that every child and every family can send their child to a, to a world-class school. Um, and, you know, that's something we certainly have spent years working on that led up to this year. And we had this enormous win at the end uh, that just unfortunately uh, yesterday was sort of snatched by the governor who vetoed the legislation. Um, so we'll live to fight another day. But I've also learned that nothing is ever as good or as bad as it feels in the moment when it comes to public policy. And so it's about taking a deep breath and finding a new approach. We'll come back to the issue of education. Was the last legislative cycle impacted at all by COVID? So, you know, you not only are you new Maryland Senate president, but it's in a time of a pandemic, which there's no way you could have been prepared for. Anybody could have been prepared for. How has that impacted the way that the legislative process has moved, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm in the camp that believes that this experience is going to have um, such a bigger impact on who we are as a society than I think than really any of us has really grasped. Um, and I've started to see it since we ended the legislative session. So, you know, following somebody that had been there for 33 years, uh, we had these huge policy issues up, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's March, we have a 90-day session, and um, it was kind of late February, early March, when all of a sudden we realized that this coronavirus uh, was really turning into a global pandemic. And here we are, two new presiding officers with Speaker Jones on the other side, and, you know, we just looked at each other like, you couldn't write this story. Um, so we had to make the decision to end early, uh, and so we ended the session 71 days in on March 18th, which was the first time that the Maryland General Assembly had left sine die early since the Civil War. So during the Civil War was the last time we, we did not conclude the 90 days. It was the hardest professional decision I've ever had to make. I do believe it was the right decision um, in hindsight, um, but was still difficult. It meant that we had to condense all of the most important work kind of in a seven to 10 day period, which was this incredibly intense period in time where we, were, we had to restrict public access uh, to the process, which again was an incredibly hard decision to make. But on the basis of public health, we just had to lower the risk as much as possible while we tried to finish uh, the big heavy things that were out there. We tried to add more transparency as, as much as possible by streaming voting sessions and everything. But 
it deeply impacted the work product by cutting the time. Um, and now, I guess we're about six, seven weeks out from that. I think what we've seen is that the, the sort of cracks in our foundation that existed prior to COVID are just being exacerbated many, many, many times over through this crisis. And I think it, it exposes sort of the true divides that exist within our system, but also shows that when we really try, we can be effective at having a unified effort at something. Um, so I, I just think there's so many lessons to learn uh, through this experience. Now, what are some of the issues facing Maryland right now? Like, what were the big issues you all were tackling in the last legislative cycle and sort of what happens? And you talked about the work that had been put into the education legislation and the governor vetoed it. It looks like there are enough people to override a veto. Is that on the table? So there's a, a lot going on in this question, but thought I'd sort of ask it all. Yeah, well, you know, it is entirely related to the to the COVID experience, too. Um, I think, and you know, you've seen it well. Um, you know, we, we both saw it in the classroom. We saw it at the school system. Unfortunately, we have not moved the needle nearly as much as we've needed to. Right now in Maryland, we're one of the wealthiest states in the country, um, and our academic achievement gains do not reflect it even remotely. We are in a, a place where less than 25% of our uh, high school graduates from Maryland public high schools are achieving an AA degree, a BA degree, or an industry-recognized credential by eight years after they graduate high school. In a world like today, especially where now we have remote work and distance learning and all these industries uh, that are ever more sophisticated, if only less than one out of every four of our students is getting that needed credential to apply for two out of the three jobs that are being created, it's not just an education crisis that we have. It is a societal economic catastrophe in waiting. And the problem is it's a bit of a slow-burning crisis, and it also has deeply inequitable impacts. And so it's one of these things that the reforms or the, the investments that need to be made in order to address it, they're not something that we're going to see the product of next week, next year. You know, these things take time to invest in people. And so the, the coalition and buy-in that's needed for these big education questions to really invest in, in young people and families so that they can kind of maximize their God-given potential, the setting has to be right and the timing has to be right. And so leading into this session, we had been working as a state for three years uh, through this, this commission that was analyzing Maryland's education system, comparing it to countries across the globe, other states that are higher performers like New Jersey and Massachusetts, to really do this gap analysis. And this uh, series of recommendations were put forward that would have really rethought from, from soup to nuts how we approach public education to think about education differently in the state of Maryland and fund it uh, appropriately in a way that would invest in the strategies that work. That was what was before us at the start of session. And so we had what we call the blueprint for Maryland's future. Um, it was a 10-year plan that reauthorized how we fund public education around core values, investing in teachers and educators, making sure that we have the best and the brightest, expanding early childhood, making a massive investment in the resources that we need for the kids who need it most, which sounds common sense, but of course the politics of distributing money are always difficult. And the beauty was we had built this coalition that uh, when the bill ended up passing the Senate this year, we had six of our Republican colleagues in the, uh, in the Senate join all 32 members of the Democratic Party in the Senate with this bipartisan agreement around a, a vision that would be in place for the next 10 years. It was aspirational and practical. But, you know, uh, we, are, we are now in a place where um, 
those inequities that still exist are just being highlighted ever more greatly. Um, with this crisis and distance learning, this week the governor announced that our public schools will be shut down uh, for the rest of the year, meaning the school year more or less ended on March 16th. We know about 20 to 30 percent of the kids across the state, somewhere between you know 80 to 160,000 Maryland kids, have not had consistent academic instruction at all, will not until they're sort of back in a more normal school environment. So the gaps that we knew were there are only going to be even greater. And we as a society have not quite figured this out. I think now is the time that we need a vision more than ever. But unfortunately, our governor felt differently uh, and vetoed that and unfortunately has not provided a plan for where we're headed. Is there a chance to override a veto or is that just something that people put in the newspapers, but the process is so wild that that is not real? Overriding the veto is without a doubt on the table. You know, we have to be thoughtful about how we approach this, um, you know, certainly with the public health crisis still going on. Maryland has some challenges uh, constitutionally and, and rules within the system of doing virtual sessions. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether or not it's feasible. Uh, what's most likely is that we would have to be in person. And so we have to be you know, strategic and thoughtful about, about the timing of when that may be. But at the very least, we will be back in January of 2021. And so if we're not back before then, we would take it up as the first order of business then. The vision matters more. I think now is the time to be making the right investments. Even though we're facing these economic challenges, we've got to lead with our values and we've got to invest in the things that will make us strong on the back end of this crisis. Um, So, you know, I'll certainly have very detailed conversations with members. I believe the votes are there, but, you know, I don't want to speak too quickly before we've really set out the game plan. So one of the things I want to talk to you about that we haven't checked in about since uh, way back when is that you sponsored and sort of spearheaded this focus on making sure there was legislation at the state level around investigating what happened with the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force. Can you talk about, like, what's happened since then? Is that still happening? Is it, like, off the table and we know? Like, what, what's the what? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. This has been a, a frustrating um, experience. And, and I knew it would be frustrating. It has been more frustrating than I expected. Certainly, many folks, uh, you know, it was sort of a national embarrassment, um, saw the scope and extent of damage caused by um, members of the Baltimore Police Department uh, that were part of this specialized unit, the Gun Trace Task Force, that really had created a criminal element, uh, sort of an organized racket in the police department where they were, you know, robbing individuals under the guise of their official duties. The biggest challenge of this is that it wasn't just a, you know, a few bad incidents. You know, this went on for years. And so from the outset, when things started to emerge and the reporting and the investigations became more public, I kept asking myself, you know, how is it possible that the scope of harm that was created was allowed to go on? People had to know within the command structure, either turning a blind eye, negligence, it it just is impossible to believe. And I still maintain and believe that that's the case, Um, but we, we had a lot of trouble trying to get down to how this happened so that we could ensure that it would never happen again. We passed a piece of legislation two years ago that created a state commission that was granted subpoena powers. And trying to investigate this has been so much more difficult than I ever, ever thought it could be. One of the challenges we have had in the Baltimore Police Department are the cultural issues of loyalty above all else. And so the ability to acquire actionable information despite having a subpoena power, um, has been a real challenge. And so there are six members of this commission. They have been working incredibly hard. Um, They've been having some 
confidential conversations with some people that have volunteered information that they're trying to do some vetting on. But I just fundamentally have believed that we need to have a public process to kind of own up to how bad this was so that we can move from it. I don't think we've, we've really faced the music of, of understanding how it got to where it was. And there's still time, and the commission is still doing its work, so I still you know, believe that there is a way forward. But you know, it's just unconscionable that we got to where we were. Is there like a timeline by which they're supposed to have it come out, have a report? Yeah, there was a, so we did extend it. Um, so there was a first year that they were um, coming back with recommendations. They gave some interim recommendations. You know, they have to be very cautious to those who do want to testify, who have information, but don't necessarily want to have it publicly out there for fear of retribution. And so there's this very delicate balance uh, that they've been trying to weigh. And uh, they have a report, another report due at the end of this year. I'm hopeful that that will include some initial recommendations. Alongside all of this, we have the consent decree for our police department, which has put um, sort of a level of bureaucratic challenge um, because everything that the police department does has to be approved by the court, rightfully so, but it it just has created different branches of government power struggles at times. Um, And I think everybody's pointed in the same direction, but getting there has just been much slower than I think anybody would have wished. You know, one of the things that's interesting and I can only imagine is sort of now as Senate president negotiating or sort of managing your desire to make sure that Baltimore is a city that it can be and also responsibility to the entire state. How do you sort of manage that? Because you, you know, the reason you ran for Senate was about the city and it was about sort of making sure that a community that you were a part of and that you understood well and that you taught in was as good as it could be in understanding the state aspect. But now the state is really a focus of yours in a way that's very different than 10 years ago. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I I still remain the state senator representing Maryland's 46th district. And so the 46th district is my, you know, is my home. It's where I live. It's where I raise my family. It's where it's the people who put me in office. Um, and so it is. It is my primary responsibility to represent my, you know, 125,000 constituents as effectively as possible. There is this interesting balance now in this new role, and it's something I'm still kind of trying to do the best I can as I learn how to how to do it as well as possible. I mean, my perspective on this is that Maryland is a state where the city of Baltimore has been and will continue to be the hub for. You name the issue, um, or you know the the economic hub, the cultural hub, the place where if the city of Baltimore is struggling, it is nearly impossible for the state of Maryland to succeed. There is so much that flows in and through, not just through history, but today uh, through the city of Baltimore that the state and the city are intertwined intimately, and so. The challenges that our city faces are very, very real and very complex and hard. And what I fundamentally believe is that the policies that sustain over time are the ones that are able to put people's destinies together in a shared way where everyone can succeed. And so if there are specific targeted relief programs for a specific community or a specific location, it's hard to sustain those over time when the people change, when the crisis is averted, when... But if there is a program that is more universally beneficial, those are the ones that last and often have the biggest impact. And so I've always tried to approach it from how do we align the city of Baltimore with broader initiatives that are happening across the state or in areas geography-wise and demographic-wise that have the same struggles. There's a lot of places on the eastern shore in western Maryland that have very similar challenges. And so 
the broader the policies, the more sustainable in the long run they are, from my perspective. Um, but of course, there are going to be targeted supports, and where appropriate, you know, I certainly will fight as hard as possible for them. But we are lucky in the city to have some really, really talented legislators. I mean, just uh, on the Senate side, we just have some incredibly talented state senators who are incredible advocates for the city, and we all work very collaboratively together. So they can be kind of the voice of the change for the city, and I can be sort of a piece of the puzzle. What do we know now about the impact of COVID, given uh, that we're still learning, right? So I know I saw on the news that there were, that the governor secured, I don't know, a, a couple hundred thousand tests uh, for people in Maryland. I can only imagine that there are more people accessing government benefits and than they were before. I also, you know, in following the news, have seen that the outbreaks that are getting the most attention are in nursing homes. Are those things sort of the top line things that we should be talking about? Is there something else? Is testing going to expand in Maryland? Like what, what do you know that you can help us sort of better understand? Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to think about this similar to, to kind of the New Deal concept of that you know, when you are in the crisis, you have to focus on relief. Phase one is relief. How do you deal with manage the crisis day to day to just get, you know, save as many people as you possibly can um, and provide the supports to people who need it as quickly and as effectively as possible? My approach has been sort of in the, these three phases that represent sort of what happened through the New Deal is that the, the immediate is about relief for pain and suffering and providing the supports for people who need it during this, this crisis period. Phase two is kind of the recovery. How do we start to recover and learn from what we did during the relief to recover? And then the last component is reform. How do we engage in the policies and do the things that need to happen so that, one, we won't face this again, but two, that the scope of harm that was created is mitigated in the future and ideally totally ameliorated so that we are have a much more equitable impact should something come in the future. So the relief is, is pretty basic, right? We have to have the hospital surge beds. We've got to have the, the unemployment sh- systems working. We've got to get PPE distributed. You know, all of those things, I think, have been uh, kind of the big focus for the last five weeks. We're starting to get into this recovery phase where we start to look at, okay, here are where all of the challenges have been. I mean, the food insecurity has just been overwhelming. It has been so distressing to know how many families are struggling just to put food on the table. And then alongside of that, the systems of government that should be working have not been working at the capacity that we would expect. Our unemployment system has just been overwhelmed. I can't tell you the calls that I've gotten over the last six weeks and even just in the last week of people who are just so beyond frustrated, don't have the money to put food on the table, were unemployed, deserve to have their unemployment check. That's why we pay into an unemployment system. But the process of government has broken and they are frantic and scared. That's the stuff that just keeps me up at night. Um, and drives me through the day of like, we've just got to fix this. I do sense that there is this moment happening amongst our society. I hope it's not too early, but starting to think about recovery and, and it's been in the frame of reopening. But I think the economic impact of this, unfortunately, is going to be pretty dramatic. Um, I think people are scared and it's going to be hard to convince people that, you know, it's safe to participate as you, as you once did in our society until it's very clear that we have appropriate testing in place, contact tracing and quarantine policies, and that, you know, it's safe to engage with people. That feels like it's a ways away. I believe in the power of human ingenuity, and and maybe someone will come up with a miracle vaccine or therapeutic or treatment. I pray every day that that will be the case. But absent that, 
I think we're in this for a bit, and we have to be really honest about who's hurting the most and make sure that as we get through this that we're willing to put in the resources to help those folks who have really just had something totally extraordinary happen within their lives. Do you get like a briefing every day or something about sort of where we are with the numbers in Maryland, or how do you get information? Yeah, I mean, I get it from a lot of different places. Um, We were working very closely with the executive. That has ebbed and flowed as our governor has kind of taken on a more national profile. We have our Department of Legislative Services who have been putting together these databases and dashboards of information. I mean, I like every, lots of Marylanders are going to the coronavirus.maryland.gov website every day at 10 a.m. to see what the last 24 hours showed. You know, we are in contact with a number of the agency heads on a regular basis. When we left the session on March 18th, we said we're not going home to kind of sit on our side. We knew that we were leaving early, but the work was just going to be continuing in a different way. And so every Wednesday, we put together this joint legislative COVID-19 response work group of 12 members of the Senate and 12 members of the House. We've been getting briefings and updates and pulling in uh, experts from across the country on these different models and projections to really hone in on where I think the legislative branch will matter the most, and that's what we do after we get through this, and how do we make sure that we serve people in a way that respects how much pain is being experienced. You know, one of the things I see, have seen other states sort of talk about already is what do we do about the summer, right? Like, what happens if uh, programs like YouthWorks, for instance, in Baltimore aren't funded and there are, you know, schools already not going to happen? What do we do with the summer and so many young people? Do you have any idea about, like, how we plan for a summer with potentially no activities open? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to assume that we're, we're in a place where that is very likely, where social distancing is still needed. And even if it's groups of 50 or 100, um, that radically restricts how youth engage with one another in summer activities. And so I think this summer is going to be an extremely challenging one. We had a member of the Hopkins, uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, brief our work group, uh, I think it was last week, who made the point, you know, how do second graders socially distance? You know, sort of not in a second grader's DNA to stay six feet away from another second grader. So the impact that this experience is having on young people will continue to be dire. I am of the belief and have been pushing and hope that there are folks that will, especially those philanthropic folks out there who are thinking creatively, um, it would be amazing to see a national program of one-on-one tutoring with personalized tutoring, with tutors that could be hired for be them teachers or folks who are unemployed currently, that we could really target tutoring efforts for those young people who we know have been disengaged during this social distance learning period and make it something that like kids really want to be a part of. Find DeRay McKesson, right, to do public advertising about this like summer learning tutoring program that could be fun and engaging. And I just think if somebody put out a challenge like that to say we are going to we're going to target in states the 20% of kids that have not been engaged. We're going to find a way to get them broadband. We're going to get them a device, and we're going to provide a tutoring program to catch them up so that when they get back into a classroom six, eight, ten months later, there will be the least amount of harm done to their learning loss. I think we've got to focus on things that are achievable. I think tutoring we know works, and we should be able to do it in a distance learning way with the technology that we have. I haven't seen anything out there yet along those lines, but I just believe that it could be created if we put money, time, and resources behind a focus on the kids who we know are losing the most right now. Boom. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. We consider your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you, DeRay. Keep the faith. We're going to do great things moving forward. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.